I have a question for you. What are you doing to support women to leadership positions in your organisation? From all of the work I have done with both individuals and organisations, I have compiled my learnings on this issue in my new guide, 15 Ways to Support Women in Leadership. You can download it for free at happieratwork.ie forward slash resources. The guide addresses not only the individual responsibility of us as women looking to get to those leadership positions, but also the challenge of creating a supportive environment. A reminder of that address, happieratwork.ie forward slash resources. You're listening to the Happier at Work podcast, and I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. Through a combination of solo episodes and interviews with some incredible guests, we bring you the insights and practical tips to create happier working environments for you and your teams. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or a colleague and leaving a rating or review on your favorite platform. At the base level, one's autonomy, mastery and purpose at work. And I absolutely fit into that. So something I can do really well, I can make my own decisions. You know, I feel like I'm contributing towards something. I think that's what makes me happy at work. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I'm so thrilled that you decided to tune in today. My guest today is Joanna Parsons, who specializes in internal communications. Now, we cover a huge range of topics, but all really pertinent to being happier at work and creating happier working environments. As always, at the end of today's episode, I will do a synopsis of some of the key points that we talked about during today's show, any actions that you can take. And I would love to hear from you if you had any light bulb moments, if you took any action as a result of today's podcast episode. As always, you can connect with me through the website happieratwork.ie and you will find all of my social links there. Now, Joanna and I, we start by talking about internal communications, but we also cover things like values, power at work, the role of managers, flexibility and being more strategic. So I really hope you enjoy today's episode. Joanna, you're so welcome to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm so thrilled to have this conversation with you today because we've been talking about this for quite a long time. So I'm really interested to get into this discussion today. Do you want to let people know a little bit about who you are and kind of your career journey, how you got to where you are now? Sure. Thanks, Aoife, for having me on. And you know what? I am nervous to be here with you because I usually go on a podcast super prepared. I have the questions in advance. I've rehearsed and probably over-practiced. And then you were like, just come on, we'll just have a chat. I'm not telling you what the topics are. I'm not giving you the questions. So I'm here. I'm out of my comfort zone. And actually, I'm kind of liking the vibe. So my name is Joanna. I live in Dublin. I live in a little fishing village by the sea. And I work for a company called Bentley Systems, a big US kind of global tech company. I am director of colleague experience. And my professional life has mostly focused on communications, internal communications, uh, so I was head of internal communications with on Garda the Irish police force during COVID. I was actually the first person in the hundred year history of the police to hold that title. They didn't have an internal comms team before. I also do some lecturing. I teach a course on strategic internal communication with the Public Relations Institute of Ireland. I just started doing that this year and I love it. I'm 40 and I didn't know that I love teaching, but just learned that about myself this year. <laughs> And I also sit on the board of directors with the Institute of Internal Communication, really because I really like to keep up to date with what's going on and to be 
helping other communicators do what they do best. So that's kind of me. Brilliant. I love it. And interesting, you're saying you didn't get any questions in advance. That's quite honestly, because I don't prepare any questions in advance. I love the format of this show, that it's really like just having a conversation with someone over a cup of tea and the listeners get to kind of earwig on that conversation. You know, they just kind of get to listen in to, well, what are they talking about? And it feels quite intimate and it feels quite lovely. And I hope from a listener's perspective that they kind of get that vibe as well, that they're just listening in on something that it's not structured, well, it's semi-structured, but that it's not too rigid and we let the conversation flow wherever it goes. So hopefully I feel nice and relaxed about that. So that's really good. Uh, And I know just prior to hitting the record button, what I had mentioned to you was that I never knew about this thing called internal communications. Like I'm seeing more and more of it on LinkedIn for sure, especially from your post. I think you're doing a phenomenal job about highlighting what it is, why it's important. But you want to explain a little bit about what that is and why it's important? Because if I think back to my corporate days, I don't ever recall there being a specific role around internal communications. Yeah, well, you're not alone. Like if I meet an old friend and they say, oh, what do you do? And I say, I work in internal communications. They get this look of like, I don't know what that is. I'm too afraid to say, but I don't know what that is. Internal communications is the profession where we communicate within an organization. So we communicate with employees. So I don't deal with journalists. I'm not pitching out to the media. I'm not dealing with investors or external stakeholders. My role is really communicating with employees. And really the ultimate purpose of it is not just about telling employees stuff that's going on, but it's about creating a shared understanding within the organization of what's important. Where is the company going? What are the values we live by? What are we all trying to achieve together? What are those golden threads that like bring us all together as one? And really over COVID, we saw the importance of internal communication. Some people call it employee communication, really skyrocket because people were forced to engage in new ways of communication with their employees because suddenly everyone was at home. They can't just pull everyone into the town hall anymore. So there was a huge investment from lots of companies in internal communication for the first time. You could see it actually on the job boards the last two, three years. There are a bajillion jobs for internal communicators. And I have to say, I love it. I think I love it because of the closeness that you can have with your audience. It's not like if I want to find out what people think, I have to commission a big public survey. I can ring people. I can ask them. I can have a chat. What did you think about that? Mm. And I love that. I'm like, I really, really love what I do. Yeah, I love that approach. And I want to come back to this idea of like understanding or I suppose taking a step back from the communicating of what's important, of the values and what we're here to achieve together. What do you think companies are, are doing well and doing maybe not so well in terms of understanding that in the first place before they can communicate it? question isn't it you often see companies that have core values that sound great they're always the same aren't they integrity accountability honesty and they write them on the wall and they make lovely coasters and they make posters and they have them everywhere but they don't mean anything because no one has actually taken the time to communicate well what does integrity mean what does that look like what are the behaviors that we would like to reward And what are the things that actually we might punish Mm. under that? And it's funny because, you know, I think about big companies that have gone horribly wrong, like Enron or companies that have big scandals. And they're often the ones that have things like integrity and we do the right thing and they're meaningless. 
Mm-hmm. So um, a big part of something like core values in a company is, you know, before you start communicating it, to have that conversation at the leadership team, what does it actually mean? What are the tangible behaviors and actions? And how will we role model that? First of all, before we ask anyone else to do it, what are we going to do to demonstrate that we are being accountable or we are being transparent or we are being collaborative or whatever it is. So it always starts at the top. Mm, yeah, I love that. And and you're so right. And I 100% agree. And this is something I talk about a lot. And, and it's come up on the podcast quite a few times as well. I'll put a link to the show notes on those previous episodes. But you're so right. The core values have to be something that is the lived experience of the people. Otherwise, it's a huge disconnect. And something that's come up more and more lately is this idea of the employee branding and whatever you want to call it, culture washing or something, saying this is what the culture is like. And then you arrive in and it's like, this is this is not what was promised to me at all. Like this is toxic culture versus what you said, what you said it was. So I see so much of that happening that they talk about the values, but the values are not actually the lived experience of the people in the organization. I was interested as well in relation to what you said about it being the leadership team. So for me, yes, it's it's the leadership team, but it's it's everyone in the organization needs to get involved in terms of determining what those values are, but also understanding whether the values are maybe aspirational, like this is where we'd like to be. We're not necessarily there yet. And these are the actions that we're going to take to close that gap. I also love what you had to say about punish. I probably shy away from using that word a little bit because like what what does punishment look like in the workplace you know but absolutely that it needs to be addressed so if you're if you're talking about integrity and like you say this is something that a lot of companies talk about but don't necessarily live what does that look like in the organization and what are the positive sides of that but then also at the other side what are the negatives what does negative integrity behavior look like that means taking money for the sake of taking money, if, even if it's not maybe a good client fit. It means maybe moving. And I'm always thinking, I'm commercial background, so I'm always thinking from a money perspective, like moving money that should come in in January, moving it up to make sure that it comes in in December. So you hit your year end, your year end numbers. So things like that are the kind of things that spring to my mind. Any Any thoughts around that? Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I think that's kind of the bit that people miss. They kind of focus on, you know, what might this look like? But they kind of forget the bit of like, how would we know if somebody wasn't doing that? Yeah. And in lots of cultures, that's where things fall down because the culture isn't just the way we act around here, but it's it's what we tolerate. Yeah. And it's that bad behavior mm. that isn't called out. Yeah. And like I've known people who have left jobs because, you know, Steve or Mary is always doing X, Y, and Z and everyone turns a blind eye and off. Yeah. That's just the way they are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was interested as well as in what you said there about, you know, the promise of values and then your experience internally, because I had a job once where the values were amazing and the recruiters were like, oh, this is such a great place to work and it's amazing, blah, blah, blah. And I when I got in there very, very quickly, it was such a shock because it was micromanagement. Mm. It was people breathing down your neck, telling you what to do and how to do it in a senior role, mind you. And it was completely the opposite of what I was sold and the turnover rate in that company was very high because of this sort of say do gap and it was very very pronounced you could see it you could feel it when you joined that's so interesting and 
I think it's funny because I always assumed that micromanagement sort of happened at that lower level. First time manager don't really know what you're doing. But the more people I talk to and the more I talk about toxic workplaces and what that means, the more I'm getting exposed to people in really senior positions who are being micromanaged by their bosses. And I often wonder, how do these people get to that level to begin with? There's a phrase my husband uses. He says people get promoted beyond their competence. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Beyond their level of competence. Peter principle, I think they call that. It's usually people who are very technically good. They're really good at sales or making stuff or engineering or whatever it is. They're good at doing the thing. They're not great people. And then as they rise up the ranks, because their targets are all hit and they're hitting their numbers, but they've missed that. I don't like the term soft skills. I prefer to call it critical skills. Yeah. Things like empathy and communication and Mm -hmm. leading people and motivating people. They just don't have that. There's also a thing that people, as they get increasingly senior, like they just love the power of it and they Mm -hmm. don't want to delegate really anywhere. So, you know, you will micromanage people if you are determined to hold on to all that power, make sure everything is done the way that you want to do it. Mm. Where for me, like a key driver for me in a role, and actually when I was moving jobs recently, I had a very upfront discussion with my potential boss. And I was like, I don't like really being told what to do. I'd like yeah. to agree on like a strategic outcome. Yeah. And then you leave me to it. Let me figure out how to do it and when to do it. And I'll, me and my team will work out all the stuff. Yeah. But let's agree on what we're trying to achieve. And then, leave me alone, I'll come back to you. I'm mm. like, that's how I like to work. Yeah, no, you're you're so right. And I, I love that idea. You agree the strategic outcome is a really great description. I'm always about the, we're focusing on the outcomes here. And, you know, when I talk about needs at work and need satisfaction, autonomy is one of our basic psychological needs, especially at work. And if you have someone telling you what to do and how to do it, you lack that sense of choice and control over what you do. I want to come back to this idea of power and not delegating. This idea of power is something I'm really interested in. And I haven't necessarily addressed it in of itself on the podcast just yet. But I'm constantly thinking about the different sources of power. And it's maybe the kind of the us and them. When you have power, you want to hold on to it. And you have power through these various things. It could be from a label. It could be from a position you find yourself in. It could be from knowledge that you have. It could be that you are the first person to do something. But when we have that power, we think maybe it won't impact on us. But then at the end of the day, we get that power and maybe we change as people. I'm not sure. Oh, that's interesting. It is funny. I'm interested in what you said there about like the us and them, because sometimes I see people who want to be managers. They haven't really thought about what a manager is or what a manager has to do. They just want that kind of title. Oh, I yeah. want to be a manager. I want to I want to be the boss. I want to tell people what to do. But the thing about it is I was doing some research. I did a really great course when I was in the police. It was a, a diploma in executive leadership. And there was this really interesting study that really stuck with me about, now this was in the policing context, but I think it applies everywhere, that people in in lower ranks or more junior roles they watch very carefully their managers and the senior leaders and they will mimic and mirror their behavior because they take that as cues of what is acceptable. So when you step into a manager role or into a leadership role, the impact that you have is enormous. And I think people forget that people are watching what you do. They're listening carefully to what you say. You can make or ruin somebody's day 
in how you interact with people, whether you recognize someone did a good job or you say some flippant comment, you know, that whole bit about people really need to have that emotional intelligence so that they can understand how they are impacting on other people and they're able to kind of read other people's emotions and flex their leadership style accordingly and all of that. But that whole power thing is so interesting. It's interesting what you say as well, Joanna, about the the kind of the lower ranks watching. I've always thought of it from the, if you're in this senior position, you're kind of like a beacon, you're kind of shining across the entire organization and the higher you get, the more people that are watching you. But I never thought about it, I suppose, from the perspective of if I'm in a lower rank position, I'm watching out for those cues and signals. And if Dave is behaving really badly and going against values, but no one is holding him to account because of that, because he's hitting his numbers, then that sends me a signal that, oh, it's okay to not have integrity here. I know you talk about integrity, but actually it's okay to do what Dave's doing because he's doing it and no one's doing anything about it. No one's stopping him. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, you know, when we talk about managers and leaders being culture carriers, Mm -hmm. that's exactly what it is because what they do, people will copy. And if they are behaving in a way, I mean, a really simple example is, say you have an organization and they decide that there's a new policy when you're in a meeting, you don't use your phone, put your phone in your bag or you put it in your pocket, don't use your phone. And then the CEO comes into the next meeting and he or she are checking their emails and they're on their phone. That sends a very clear signal to everyone in that room. Well, that policy, we don't really mean that. Like actually it's grand. So the leadership behavior, one simple thing like looking at your phone can totally erode a key message or like a well-intended policy Mm. because everybody's watching what they're doing. They will copy that. And here's another perspective on that. When I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking the CEO is there on their phone and that sends a signal that it's okay if you're the CEO or it's okay if you're a senior leader to be on the phone, but that's not okay for me. And it creates a divide then. It creates that us and them culture. Like it's one thing for the CEO, he or she can get away with that. But actually, if I was to take out my phone, someone would quickly tell me that we have this new policy in place, but no one wants to stand up or address that behavior in someone who's a senior leader. Yeah, that's great. And I remember I worked in a place once where everyone had to clock in all their hours. It's going back in time a bit, unless you were at a certain level of management and above, and then they Mm -hmm. didn't. And I remember querying this going, well, I hated being on the clock. I just like, don't Mm -hmm. watch me. It makes me very uncomfortable. But I was kind of told, oh, no, it's to do with, you know, the working time policy and we have to, for legal reasons, we have to do this. And I was like, but why are they exempt just because they're a certain level or above? Oh, well, you know, managers need more discretion and da, da, da. But it was such a clear divide between the haves and the have nots. Mm-hmm. And it was really manifested in that culture in lots of different ways. But this was one very visible way of doing it. And it it was so... I don't know if it was unintentional or they just didn't think it through. Those kind of things really signal some animals are more important than others. Do you know that kind of way? Yeah. When you think about it like that, it's like, and I love the description, the haves and the have nots. Like there is a lot of that that exists in organizations. I think you get to a certain level. I worked in an organization where you get to a certain level and you get a certain type of phone. But if you're below that level, then you get the kind of poorer version of that phone. Now, again, maybe that's a power thing. So when I got to that level, I was like, oh, great. Now I can order this iPhone as opposed to the the Samsung that was at the lower levels. But when someone in my team requested that she get an iPhone, I was like, well, 
and, and it wasn't a power play on, on my part. It was more like, this is the policy that exists, so I can't approve it because then that's, that's going against the policy. But it did make me think about the policy. And again, it's reinforcing this us and them. It's reinforcing that the haves and the have-nots and, and the once you get to a certain level, then, then it's acceptable. Once you get to a certain level, you get a better phone. And all of these are sending very clear signals to people in the organization about who's important and who's not. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, ultimately, you want people to feel valued. And this is a great way to not do that. I think, you know, one of the great shifts I saw during COVID was maybe a slight leveling of the playing field in this regard, in terms of if you think about if a CEO or a senior leader ever had a medical emergency or their child had to come home from school, they just go and they do it. They have the flexibility. They've always had the flexibility. Just go and do what you need to do. But I see now in a post-COVID world, People have that flexibility more and more. Like the company I work for now, like they're amazing in terms of flexibility and for all levels. Like it doesn't matter what country you're in, what level you're at. If something happens to your kid and you need to go, you go. Mm. If your filling breaks and you need to go to the dentist as an emergency, you go. You don't need to apply. You don't need to like let your manager know, but just go and look after yourself and do that. And I think I can see that more and more in the, in the discourse around flexibility in the workplace, that perhaps that's leveling out a little bit. Yeah, it's really great to see that, I think, because I think previously it would be like, I need to ask permission in order to be able to do this. But now it's more I'm informing someone and I'm letting them know that my work will be taken care of later or by someone else or tomorrow. Or I think especially in those times when someone is sick in an emergency, something like that, we realize then what's really important, you know, and then it puts things in perspective for us a little bit more. And I think COVID generally did that. Yeah, and an interesting thing, I um, went to a conference recently in Lisbon and it was all about remote work. But one of the themes that came up was around flexibility and that people don't just want location flexibility, but they really want time flexibility. So like, why do we have to do nine to five every day? Like we're not in Henry Ford's factory anymore. Like times have changed. So, you know, some people like to work really early in the morning. Like my husband will get up and start work at six before our daughter gets up and then we'll do the school run and then he'll come back on later. I like to get up and go to the gym after I drop her to school and then I'll work after that. And I have no problem. Like if I'm working with people in other time zones and I need to pop on in the evening sometimes, I just take a longer lunch. So it's that kind of location flexibility. I'm at home, I'm in the office, but it's also that bit about time like trust me to get the work done in the time that suits me like the outputs and the outcomes will be the same but I feel like I have the freedom to kind of design my job around my life rather yeah. than the other way around yeah I think you, you hit the nail on the head there Joanna with this idea of outcomes like that's something that I talk an awful lot about and if we can just come back to this idea of the location flexibility versus time flexibility and for me, in order to get that, and it's all about asynchronous communication, and maybe we'll, we'll come on to talk a little bit about that and what that looks like um, in a second, because I'm, I'm sure that falls into internal communications. But like thinking about location flexibility. So I worked in, in Tenerife at the start of the year. That's location independent. It doesn't matter where I'm, work, where I'm working. I can still get my job done. But then you were saying this thing about taking a longer lunch because you're going to work longer hours into the evening. And and to me, 
if you tie that back to but the outcomes are going to still be the same, then it doesn't matter whether you take a long lunch or a short lunch. It's, it should matter that the outcomes get done and it shouldn't like we need to move away. Exactly like you said, we're not in the factory anymore. It shouldn't be nine to five. And it's ingrained in us. I'm five years gone from my most recent corporate role. And it's still ingrained in me. I still have this mentality of work starts at nine and work finishes at five and I take an hour for lunch. But actually, I much prefer to start earlier in the morning. I'm like your husband. I like that, you know, the early start, get stuff done. That's when I do my best thinking. But then I'm happy to take a long break in the middle of the day and work into the evening as well if I need to, you know. So it's it's really rethinking what it is that that work is, I think. I think this has presented us with an opportunity. And the people who are not getting it right are the people who haven't really thought about what is it that we're here to achieve. And it might be that it changes from time to time, that the priorities are kind of shifting and they need to be on top of that. They need to communicate that as well. But it also could be a power thing. Like I'm telling you when to be at work and what you're supposed to be doing, whereas the benefit that flexibility brings is this it's people are much more autonomous and they can work things out for themselves with sufficient guidance and direction, you know, as much as what they need that they're getting that. But you know what it is? It's easy for managers to measure bums on seats and hours yes, in a week. Exactly. Done. Grant, it's much more difficult to actually spend the time performance managing your team. And did you do what you said you were going to do? Did you do it to a good standard? Is it on time? Are we actually like looking at our strategy and are we making progress on what we said was important and are we doing that rather than I'm just so busy all the time. I'm really, really busy. I did 40 hours work and I'm really busy. And it's like my favorite question ever. And some people, it can sound rude. I don't mean rude. So what? Like, oh, we had 200 people come to this town hall and 400 people read this email. And I'm like, but so what? What did they do as a result of that? What did you achieve as a result of that communication? Did it change anyone's behavior? Did they feel anything differently? Did they learn anything? Do you know, all of that. So I think part of it, and I can see it, you know, there's still these kind of dinosaur leaders who are forcing people back to the office five days a week because making an intentional decision to redesign your workplace to have people collaborating and communicating remotely or in a hybrid that's much more work. They just don't want to do it. And I mm. do think they'll be left behind. Yeah. And uh, one of the speakers at that conference I was at lately, he likened this kind of remote work movement. He said it's like in the early 1900s when it was the introduction of cars. And, you know, there was no kind of, the roads weren't aligned. And he showed this video of, you know, a pedestrian was stepping in front of a car and then there was a horse and cart coming down the road and there was a bike because there was no demarcation of the lanes and there was no intentional design for how all this would work. And people went mad and they resisted it. It was said, we don't want this. This is chaotic and we don't like it. But once the infrastructure got built, once the roads got made and we designed all these lanes and how everything interacts, you are transformed completely how we live. And I feel like remote work is the same. Like I started remote working when I was in the police. So it was a pandemic in an emergency service. I had a two-year-old at home and the crash was closed. And even, even then, I loved remote work immediately. Mm. And I will never work full-time in an office ever again. Yeah. I think it's, it's brought such an opportunity. And I love this that you're saying, like there's so much more work involved in thinking about how to manage that situation. And, and, and maybe we'll come on to that. 
But I love this idea of an intentional design. So it's really thinking about work, what it is that we're here to do. And it's so much easier to measure, to use your term, bums on seats and how long people are spending and how busy they say they are and the number of hours that they've put in. But it's coming back to what changed as a result of the work that you did. So have people taken action? Have, are they behaving in a different way than they were previously based on, on something that you did, based on some sort of intervention or based on the work that you did? Yeah, that's something I really um, emphasize. I, I teach a class on strategic internal communication and lots of communicators. And look, I fell into this myself in more junior roles, really focus on tactics like the stuff, the activity, the writing the stuff and making videos. And, you know, we published 12 articles last month and I really try to guide them away from that. And, you know, when you're starting your work, like the starting point should be the overall business strategy. So what is the organization trying to achieve and how is communication going to help the business to do that rather than let's do loads of stuff and it'll be really pretty and the graphics will be nice. And, um, and it's a real mindset shift actually to move from order taker into a strategic advisor and to think of it involves saying, saying no to loads of stuff, which lots of communicators because they're really nice, helpful, gorgeous people, they're really uncomfortable saying no to stuff. But that's really what it is. It's about that mindset shift from I'm here to do loads of busy work to actually I'm going to help the business move the needle on the stuff that it says it's important. I love that. And it's I suppose it's something that I talk about all the time. And it's not just in communications departments, in marketing, in HR, whatever it might be. It's across every department rather than operating in a silo. And like these, I love how you described like tactics. These are the actions we've taken. Oh, we've printed 12 newsletters. It's easy to measure. It's easy to say, well, we set out to, to do 12. We did 12. So we've hit our objective that we set for ourselves. But it's much more difficult to think about what is a business trying to achieve? How can we support that? What do we need to do in order to do that? And how do we measure it? So how do we measure where we start and how do we measure where we finish, you know, whether you're saying this is going to take us a year to do this and we start and measure here and then we start and we measure at the end. I love that you're saying it takes this mindset shift to become, to go from this operator to a strategic advisor, which is essentially what you need to do. And and for me, it's, it's not just internal communications. This applies across the board. How can you think more strategically about what the business is trying to achieve and your contribution to that, whether it's at an individual level, at a team level, at a departmental level, how can you think more strategically about that? And also the importance of saying no. Sometimes you have to turn things down because they're not aligned. And, you know, if, if I think of this in terms of me running my own business, there are some things that I have to turn down because it's not aligned with where I want to be. It's not supporting my vision for my business. And so I need to remember that it's easy to say yes and you say, yes, because I'm going to bring in more money. But actually, is that really where I want to be? And if I say no, I'm opening up myself to more opportunities of things that I do want to do. Yeah, and it's about you know, some people say, oh, I don't have time. I don't have time. I can't do that. And I'm like, everyone has the same time. We all have the same time. It's not about that you don't have time. It's just about what you're prioritizing. And people who can't say no often just don't prioritize because they're just in this sort of cycle of non-stop reactive firefighting stuff they're just churning stuff out 
And then at the end of the week, they can find themselves very frustrated because they're like, oh, I really wanted to do X and I didn't get any time to do X. Well, do you know what? No one's coming to give you that time. You have to take it. Yeah. So like I will often like block out time in my diary. if I know I want to focus on something. And there's one thing I want to get done in the week. I'm first going to block out the time. I'll turn off all my notifications. If my team need me urgently, they can ring me. But otherwise, I am head down and I'm going to get that done. So then whatever the rest of the week brings, I've got that one big piece of a thing done. And I think part of that is people send you a request and they go, can you help me with this? Can you do this? I need this yesterday. And sometimes you just need to say, actually, that's not my priority at the moment. I can't help. It makes people uncomfortable. You're absolutely right. But I think going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of time and like if you're feeling like you're busy and it's easy to measure the amount of time that you're spending at work. It's much more difficult to measure the outcomes that you've achieved in relation to what the business is trying to achieve in the same way that it's so easy to be reactive and to depend on other people to fill up your to-do list and to make you feel like you're being really busy and you're like, oh, I have this email and I've replied to the email, et cetera, et cetera, rather than sitting back strategically thinking, what am I here to achieve this week? What do I need to say yes to? What do I need to say no to? And you're so right that, you know, feeling at the end of the week that we have achieved something that we set out to do is so rewarding rather than feeling I've been busy all week, but what did I actually achieve that was on my own to-do list? Love that, that phrase, no one's coming to give you that time. You have to take it. And if someone's making a request on you, the people pleasers among us will be like, yeah, absolutely. What can I do to help? Because it's easy to do that. It's easy to say, yes, it's a bit more awkward to say, actually, thank you for thinking of me. It's not part of my strategic priorities right now, but how, how about you have a chat with Dave about that? Or thanks for, you know, being really flattered, like, oh, thanks for thinking of me, but actually I can't take that on at the moment. Or if, it, you know, sometimes it's from your boss and you have to kind of think about things and remind them what you have on your plate and say, I'm doing this, this, and this. I understood that that's what the priorities were. If you're telling me that this is a priority over those, what comes first and what can be dropped and, and rejigging the priorities? Yeah, and I think that's a good test of the relationship you have with your manager and whether your manager is actually like good or not. Because I remember before I had that exact conversation with the boss where, you know, we had agreed literally the day before we had agreed these are the top four priorities. This is how you're going to spend your time. And I was like, I totally agree. We're aligned. Fab. And then the next day, you know, there was another whim or a faux crisis and, oh, I really need you to deliver X, Y, and Z. And I said, great, well, let's, let's look at those four priorities we identified yesterday. Which of these do you want to take off the plate? And this is obviously going to supersede one of them. Oh, no, no, no. They're all, they're all urgent. They're all equally important. Mm. I said, I don't have capacity to do five. I can do four. What four do you want? But there was no reasoning with this person and it mm. was just... And that was, to me, was a big waving red flag going, get out, get yeah, out, because yeah. the work just kept piling on and there was no empathy or understanding of, you know, in some cultures, they just say, sure, just, just get it done. Just tick the box. Do, do a scrappy job. Someone said to me once, God, that made me uncomfortable. I don't do crap work. But I do great work and I take yeah. great pride in delivering great yeah. work. So for someone to just pile it all on and say, just do a crap job and it's fine. Mm. No, thank you. Yeah, no. that's your brand. You know, if you're delivering on something and it has your name attached to it, then that's that's attached to your name. And it's like, well, this is 
subpar or if the organization in general is happy with not I won't say subpar but like not really high quality work that you're used to doing then is that the right organization for you at all anyway so if they're accepting that this is lower quality work than what you would normally like to produce then yeah is that is that a good fit for you at all anyway yeah I think it's all about knowing your own values isn't it like yeah when I was in my 20s, I wouldn't have known what that meant. If someone said, what are your values? I would have gone, oh, I don't know. I actually invested in a workshop this year with a coach and we spent like two hours. We did some free work and some tests and we spent two hours talking about my values. And yeah. some of them were, I was like, yeah, I'm not surprised at that. And other things were like, God, I didn't know that was so important to me. And maybe I want to make that less important to me and make some room for other things that yeah. are a bit lighter and fresher. And But it's useful to know particularly if you're maybe you're not happy in your job you want to go and look for another job these are conversations to have in an interview remember yeah. an interview is two-way like you're interviewing them as well mm. like is this a boss I want to have is this a place I want to work mm. so to be really upfront with like think about what your red lines are so like I often would have gotten recruiters in my inbox and I was looking the last time and the first thing I'd say is, can I work remotely? And they say, oh, we'd really like you in three days a week. I go, no, thanks. Yeah. Because that's just a deal breaker for me. Yeah. Or like autonomy is clearly something that I value. Mm. And I also really value, like I'm endlessly curious. I want to mm. get better at stuff. I want to learn. I want to grow. Yeah. Do I have a budget for development? Will you send me on courses? Is there a mentoring program? So it's good to know mm. what you value and talk about that in your interviews. Like interrogate your future boss. How are they going to support you? in what's important to you. I think that becomes easier probably as you get older mm. and as you become more senior. But yeah. I encourage everyone to be thinking about that. Absolutely. And I'm seeing with the kind of, with the younger generation starting out at work, they're demanding a lot more of, in, in terms of things like CSO or when they're going into organizations. But it's important to know like that's, yeah, and LinkedIn, I think, talks about those as, as organizational values. For me, the values piece is more about the behavior within the organization. So if you value things like, learning and development, then exactly like you said, Joanna, what sort of budget are you putting aside for each individual in relation to that? And I think a lot of people don't realize that there is budget for them to do external courses on their own if they just go and ask their HR team, because I did a survey not too long ago and all of the HR people said, yes, there's budget available for individuals to seek out budget from their organization. But anyone who wasn't in HR said, not sure or no, so I thought that's that's very telling that it's not very common knowledge that people can seek out that budget from within their own organizations. And now you're weaving it nicely back to the start, Aoife, because that's where internal communication plays a big part. Where people <laughs> say, I didn't know about this because lots of organizations still haven't invested in someone who will really focus on communicating with the employees yeah. so that everyone understands what they can get and what's available and all the benefits and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Now you've really done a good job of explaining what it is. I know we didn't exclusively focus on internal communications, but I think from the description at the start, it's really important to know at the beginning, like what are those values before you can even communicate them? Like let's agree on what those behaviors look like and what they don't look like as well. But then thinking about, well, you know, how do we communicate that? How do we get that point across? The point of what's important here to get done as well, you know? And it's brilliant that that you say, if there's one person that's responsible for that, then it's really clear. And having those strategic priorities as well, it's really clear 
what needs to be communicated, how it needs to be communicated and how to measure it as well. Like, do people understand what those strategic priorities are and are they linking them to their own priorities for their own teams as well? Yeah, it's like you said something earlier that was really interesting about, you know, people should be pulling together and everyone should be thinking about the business strategy and what does it mean and are they aligning with that? Actually, if you don't have someone who's communicating about what that business strategy is, you'd be amazed how many people join my class or that I talk to on LinkedIn and they're asking for advice on their, you know, how do I build a communication strategy? It seems so hard. And I'm like, well, what's the business trying to achieve? And they're like, what? Yeah. I said, well, like is your business trying to get more market share, more sales, higher MPS score for your customers? What is that bit? And then you work back from there, but they have no idea. And then likewise, they're in an organization where no one's actually communicated the strategy. I worked somewhere a long time ago. It was actually the catalyst for my interest in internal comms because this event made me think, oh, I, I could help with this. The organization had a brand new strategy and it was one of those like 60 page documents said everything in it. And the launch and communication of the strategy was the CEO emailing it out to 5,000 people. And that was it. Yeah. And of course, nobody read it because it was 60 pages and you kind of go, oh, yeah, I'll look at that later. Yeah. And then red faces all, all around when he started popping into team meetings going, what did you think of the strategy? And sure, no one had a clue. Mm-hmm. But I remember thinking, ah, I can help you with this. You need to communicate that, not mm-hmm. just distribute that. That's just sending information. But communication is that people understand it. So it's not just that they receive it, but that they understand it. And that's mm-hmm. different. Yeah. That they understand tell it I love and- my job. I get so excited. But understand it and take action as well. So, yeah, exactly. You know, and taking that, you know, 60 word document and 60 page, sorry, 60 page document and translating that into something that is much more of a story of here's where we are, here's where we're trying to get to and here's how we're going to get there. And yeah, so like making it a little bit more exciting, if you like. But yeah, absolutely. Just love that that whole concept, and I never had thought about it before. I think because I've never seen it in action, and I can see now just how important that is. So, Joanna, the question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast: What does being happier at work mean to you? I like this question because I had a text the other day from um, I went on a coaching retreat. It's nearly a year ago now, and I was really unhappy, and I was just like. Malcontent is probably the word. I was stressed and I was frustrated. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't exercising. I was just really unhappy. And she texted me yesterday. She said, How's it going? And you know what I thought? I thought, I'm really content. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever been content. So I think a lot of, you know, I'm in a fairly new job. I'm only here two months. And for me, a lot of the feeling I have at work is I feel I have a lot of autonomy. I have a, like immediate respect from and everyone's talking my LinkedIn before I join and they're yeah. all like delighted to have me, but I feel supported. Everyone is outrageously collaborative and warm and like genuinely nice. Mm. And for me, I'm, you know, I'm always, when I think about what I want at work, I'm always reminded of that book by Daniel Pink called Drive, mm. where he talks about like everyone at the base level wants autonomy, mastery and purpose at work. And I absolutely fit into that. So something I can do really well, I can make my own decisions. You know, I I feel like I'm contributing towards something. I think that's what makes me happy at work. Brilliant. And that actually ties 
very nicely into the research that I did, which, I, you know, I'll, I'll put a link down below for anyone who's listening, but I can share with you separately afterwards as well, Joanna. And if people want to connect with you, if they want to, to reach out, what's the best way they can do that? Do that on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. Please send me a connection request, send me a message. Happy to chat. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely love this. And hopefully it, it all felt quite natural and it wasn't too rigid in terms of the questions and all of that kind of stuff. It definitely felt like, like that way to me. Do you know what? I had a great time. Sure, we'll have another chat. Absolutely. Thank you. I promised you a good one today and I really hope you were not disappointed. I loved that conversation with Joanna. And before I go on to summarise some of the key points that we discussed during today's episode, I want to remind you to get involved in the conversation, to share your thoughts, share your questions, your challenges, anything. And you can do that through the website happieratwork.ie. You'll find all of my social links there and I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So Joanna and I started by talking about what internal communications actually is. And so she taught she she defined it as being what's important, the values and what we're trying to achieve together, but how to communicate those things. But we took a step back. It's really important to understand what those things actually are. So what's important in your business? What are the values and what are you trying to achieve collectively? What are you trying to achieve together? But then you need to communicate those and make sure that people understand, not just that an email has been sent out or you have a document somewhere, but that people actually understand what that is. We went on to explore the concept of core values in a bit more detail then. We talked about, yeah, it sounds great when you say things like integrity, honesty, but actually, when that's not the lived experience of the employees, then there's a disconnect and we need to reward people who are living those values and punish people who are not or at least holding them to account and doing something about it. Because what we tolerate, what we turn a blind eye to, that becomes the new culture, that becomes the new values in the organisation. We touched on this idea of micromanagement, especially at a senior role, because previously I had assumed that micromanagement was sort of only for new managers. But it seems through lots of conversations that I've been having recently that micromanagement happens at all levels and it can still happen even at the most senior roles, which really surprises me. Expanding then on that topic of micromanagement, she talked about people be being promoted beyond their competence, missing those critical skills, so sometimes called soft skills, and maybe having a lot of power and not wanting to delegate that power, which really creates an us and them culture. Now, that's a theme I found throughout the podcast discussion today was this idea of having an us and them. So people who are in the know or people who are the haves versus the people who are not in the know or people who are have nots. Joanna also shared the perspective that managers want to become managers because of the title. They don't necessarily understand everything that goes along with being a manager. And that has certainly been my experience in the past where people don't understand the full enormity of what the role entails. They see the title, they see a pay increase, and that's why they want to become a manager. But, you know, this has come up several times on, on previous podcast episodes where we should give people the choice as to whether they want to be a manager of people or whether they don't. We talked about managers and leaders as culture carriers. Now, I haven't heard that expression before and I absolutely love it. And she described it as the lower ranks watching the higher ranks. So, you know, seeing what is acceptable, what's not acceptable and essentially mimicking that behaviour. 
We touched on this idea of flexibility in relation to the future of work and what that looks like and how much easier it is to measure bums on seats or time as an input rather than taking a step back to think about what is it that we're trying to achieve here and has that actually been achieved It's so much easier to think in terms of the amount of time that someone has spent doing something or how busy they are or say they are rather than taking time to strategically think about what it is that you're trying to achieve. And I I loved how Joanna described it as, you know, if someone says I'm busy, then you think, well, so what? What action has happened as a result of your work? What behavior was the result of your work? She described it as needing intentional design to overcome the chaos So rather than looking at the tactics, which is we put out 12 articles, think about it from a more strategic perspective. So what is the overall business strategy? What is the business trying to achieve? And if you don't know that, then find out. And she mentioned that it requires a huge mindset shift. So going from a someone who is a contributor or an operator to a strategic advisor and the importance of saying no. So knowing what's really important to get done and then having the confidence and the courage to actually say no because it doesn't form part of your priorities. And when we say I don't have time, it really means that it's not a priority for you right now. And tying in with that whole concept, it's the idea of being reactive versus proactive. So reactive is easy. It doesn't require any thought. It requires you to react to whatever lands on your desk, whether that's an email, whether it's work from somebody else. But proactive requires you to take some time out and really think about what it is that you're trying to achieve. Another quote that I loved from Joanna was, no one's coming to give you that time. You have to take it. I would absolutely love to know if there's anything that you are going to do differently as a result of listening to today's episode. Did it make you think about things a little bit differently? Are there some specific actions that you can take in order to make changes in your workplace? I would absolutely love to know. As always, do connect with me through the website happieratwork.ie and I look forward to hearing from you. That was another episode of the Happier at Work podcast. And if you've made it this far, well done you. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to today's episode. If you did enjoy it, please consider leaving a rating, a review or share it with a friend. I would love for you to get involved in the conversation. And also, if you'd like to know more about how I can help you or your business, head on over to happieratwork.ie.